Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on a decade after checkpoints. What do we know? What do we need to know? And getting there faster from the 2022 Immuno Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to IO360. It's incredible to be back with everyone in the room again. Um, I thought this, for, all, for any of you that were here two years ago, uh, you'll remember that IO360 literally just preceded the beginning of the pandemic here in the United States. And those of you may remember this image, certainly burned on my memory, of Carl June getting up here and being on stage speaking for, with a mask on. And obviously at that time, that was a very shocking image for many of us. After a couple of years, it seems sort of normal. Um, but a big thank you to the organizers of IO360 for having this meeting and inviting me to give a talk here. So the focus of my talk today is around one person's interpretation of where we are about a decade into the era of cancer immunotherapy. And as I think many of you recognize, the storm that was cancer immunotherapy a decade ago has really changed so much of how we think about the science behind cancer in humans, as well as given us a modality that has been an incredibly powerful tool in our ability to treat a very broad range of cancers. During that period of time, as the clinical results rolled in from the clinic, that kind of information helped fuel a number of different ways to think about the scientific framework behind what it is we were seeing and doing within the clinic. In the cancer immunity cycle, the cancer immune set point are two of these frameworks, but certainly not the only ones um, that for, for us as a community that we've attempted to use to understand what it is we were seeing and helped us think about what to do next. As part of that wave of information that has come in, and here's, this is represented in, an, in another publication referred to as the tumor immunity continuum, we started to understand that human patients, their cancers really presented in ways that belonged to three major classes. And you heard that referred to in some of the talks coming before already. These have been described as inflamed tumors, immune excluded tumors and immune deserts as three of the ways to bucket the different major tumor uh, presentations immunologically in humans. And these are important because these different representations of subsets are very different biologically and immunologically. And while most of the work that we've done in the field to date has focused on broad treatment of patients, we need to recognize that these subsets may contain essentially the keys to next generation therapeutics. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, one of the other things that came out from, and was part of the Cancer Immunity Cycle publication back in 2013, was the recognition not only that there were important, uh, an important set of steps that needed to be uh, passed through for the cancer immunity cycle to, to occur. Thank you. Am I back on here? Thank you. Um, that there were a, a number of different targets that we could go after. 
and, and this publication laid out many of those, um, those potential targets. The other thing we saw during this period of, of intense study for cancer immunotherapy was the proliferation of studies. This represents a point in time where there were over 800 studies in cancer immunotherapy back in December of 2016. And within just a few months, that number had increased to 1,200. So we've learned so much from the clinical trials that, um, that, have, been, that have occurred in this period of time. And so as that is, as the background, what have we really learned as the fog has cleared? So I'm gonna leave you with a number of different thoughts. So number one, orthogonal approaches have worked probably the best that we've seen in this field. And what I mean by that is as, we've, as the development of anti-PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors clearly enhanced the outcomes for many, many different types of cancer patients, so many additional combinations with anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 have been tried. And really, there have been two major classes of combinations that have led to the vast majority of approvals in this field. And those belong to two orthogonal approaches, combinations of immunotherapy with PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint inhibition with chemotherapy, as well as combinations w between immunotherapy and VEGF inhibition. And it's one of the things that we need to think very hard about. What does that mean? Why is, it, why is that what the outcome we've seen? Because many people probably in this room and certainly in the community back five or seven years ago would have argued that it was actually the immune doublets that would lead to the best outcomes. And so we really need to ingest that and think about why it is we're seeing what we're seeing. So the second um, point here is that, again, that we're still waiting for that next big IO-IO breakthrough, the combination of two immunotherapies where that many of us would have thought would have been, should have been synergistic. And it's not like we haven't tried. There have been many good immunologic targets that have been targeted with next-generation therapeutics, everything from IDEO and A2A to TIM3 and VISTA. This is a very long list of IO-IO therapeutics that have been tried. And while we have not yet seen the activity or promise that we had hoped for, that doesn't mean these targets are not good targets. Perhaps we need better drugs against them. I would argue more likely these targets need to be used and modulated in different way in a clinical setting. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about this. There have been some approvals of additional immunotherapy targets, CTLA-4, LAG-3, and CD-47, I think like, nicely represents some of the successes. Though again, I don't think we've seen the magnitude of success, particularly in combination with PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors that we have, would have hoped for for these next generation therapeutics. So as an interpretation of the, this clinical data that, we're, that we've seen, um, is the following. What is the common denominator that we're seeing? And there are 
a number of ways you can interpret this. The way I would interpret why we're seeing the success of chemotherapy and VEGF inhibition over immune doublets is essentially this, that when we apply immune doublets together, we're working off of essentially this very same set of immune escape mechanisms. So if you go use, again, the cancer immunity cycle as that framework, you can literally walk your way around the cycle pointing out places where we've seen failure for immunotherapy, again, in human cancer. Sometimes we see either a lack of good antigens or antigenic loss. Um, sometimes we have settings where we see overstimulation. We have TGF-beta-driven immune suppression. You have an inhibitory tumor microenvironment. And probably m most impactful around cancer immunotherapy is just the loss of the basic antigen-presenting machinery, such as HLA, A2, uh, HLA, A, HLA and beta-2 microglobulin as two of the major components of that presenting machinery. So essentially, cancer cells start to become invisible to the immune response. And you can imagine when you add a second immune modulator to something like PD-1, PD-L1, if any of these things are in play, you're not going to see that added benefit. And that's a major problem. Um, until we are able to specifically target the things that are leading to immune escape, it's unlikely that these immune doublets are going to be particularly impactful. And that's further driven by the fact that um, when you try to develop these things clinically, the majority of these immune doublets are essentially being developed in unselected patients in a particular disease indication. And when you do that, and you have immune escape mechanisms that are shared between um, the two mechanisms of immune modulation that you're applying, you get yourself into a really bad statistical situation very quickly because the patients that are doing the worst, the ones that have these immune escape mechanisms, are the ones that are of highest medical need, and neither of your two drugs are really helping them. Simultaneously, your two drugs really are likely to be best um, helping patients that already respond well to immunotherapy because they lack these mechanisms. And again, differentiating between whether you, one of those two drugs or both of those drugs are best for that patient is difficult and likely will take a long time because you're working off of patients that already are doing well to one of your therapies. And so this is a real conundrum for clinical development in this area. And, um, and as we think about that, we can take a deeper dive into some of the issues we're seeing. So look at vaccines as a class. I think the field of cancer immunotherapy certainly has had great hope for vaccines as an approach to the treatment of cancer. Unfortunately, in the clinic, that has yet to pan out. One of, our, one of the ways we can look at this class is questioning whether generation of any antigen-specific T cells are really a problem for the vast majority of our cancer patients. And there's some suggestion that maybe that's just not the major problem that cancer patients are facing immunologically. In terms of T cell agonism, you're aware that there have been many T cell agonists that have been tried. We recognize today very clearly that one of the complexities of T cell agonism to try to stimulate immunity is 
that they, it tends to be a double-edged sword, meaning you can use T-cell agonists to drive immune activation, but very quickly you can start to see what it amounts to a U-shaped curve and potentially evidence for overstimulation of the T-cells. Finally, back end of the cancer immunity cycle, TGF-beta appears to be an incredibly strong driver of immune suppression, particularly in immune exclusion. And as we get to the inflamed tumors, we've identified so many additional checkpoints. But one has to ask, how important is each individual additional checkpoint? How big of a role does it play in the majority of patients with human cancer? And I think that's what we've largely seen. Not that these additional checkpoints aren't important, but perhaps they play a smaller and smaller role compared to the large role that we see PD-1, PD-L1 play. All right, so moving on from here, um, just a summary of this. Address the common nodes of immune escape. If we can do that with immune doublets, I think that's when we'll see the most success and focus on highly precise patient identification. If you believe in the conclusions I offered you, those would be two ways to try to then take a strategic approach to drug development for cancer immunotherapy forward. And this would be one way to look at that. This was from a publication uh, from John Kim and myself back in 2016, referred to as personalized cancer immunotherapy paradigm. Can you really start to select patients for whom next generation immunotherapy could be more precisely developed? Given that that was the bell, I'm gonna move quickly through the next two topics. Um, basically, as you think about addressing common nodes of escape, one way to think about each of those, picking each of those nodes, one of the most important nodes is the loss of antigen-presenting machinery. When you lose that, that becomes very difficult to generate a powerful endogenous immune response. But as we recognize in the field of cancer immunotherapy, CAR-Ts and T-cell engagers are already a breakthrough for cancer patients, and they precisely are promising because they allow us to synthetically target tumors that may not be expressing normal uh, immunogenic antigens for a variety of reasons. So this allows us to generate a, an artificial immune response. But like other T-cell agonists, CAR T-cells and T-cell engagers are truly agonists. They agonize essentially the T-cell receptor, or CD3. And there is emerging data suggesting that as we use this approach, we may be simultaneously also overstimulating some of these immune cells, whether it's by chronic stimulation of T cells or CAR T cells, or increasing the amplitude of the TCR signal. And so as we think about this field, one of the important things to think about is, is there a way to achieve the benefits of synthetic immunity without having to drive overstimulation. This would be one way to look at this. I presented this back at the SITSI workshop just a few months ago, referred to as, this, as the immunity power curve. And it just notes that if you're going to stimulate T cells, whether it's synthetically, whether it's with CAR T cells or T cell engagers, one needs to keep in mind that these are agonists. And there is the possibility that you overdrive these cells and start to get, get down on the back end of this curve, reducing the benefit that you're actually trying to achieve with synthetic immunity. And I, I would argue that if we're ever to see the true promise of synthetic immunity, 
it will be because we can drive this artificial immune response and simultaneously pair it with the endogenous immune response. And if you can't do that, if one of the approaches that you're taking actually limits the other, we're just not gonna get there, at least in diseases represented by solid tumors. All right, the final major point just refers to the extensive biomarker work that has been performed in the field um, for the last 10 years as we've seen this explosion of cancer immunotherapy trials. That's been incredibly important. There are a lot of uh, conclusions that come out of these, um, these studies, these biomarker studies. Obviously, we have a useful, though not perfect, biomarker tool in PDL1 IHC expression. We've also seen others that seem to have some utility, whether it's T cell effector signatures or tumor mutational burden. And we've even seen things like tumor um, lymph node like structures within the microenvironment of tumors that help us understand what is happening in patients. But more than just having a tool, it helps us start to think about the biology and define strategies going forward. This is one simple one. As we talk about immune deserts, there's so much that we need to still understand in this area. You're gonna hear Tom Gasfi talk about immune escape mechanisms in, in one of the upcoming talks. Tom is actually a great person to ask about the kinds of mechanisms we're learning about in these immune deserts. What I would say is that biomarkers over the course of the last 10 years helped, has helped shape how we think about um, immune deserts. Back 10 years ago, I think most of us thought immune deserts were just because for some reason we were seeing a lack of cancer antigens in that patient or immune uh, passive immunologic ignorance that could be overcome with things like vaccines. And yet, as we've studied these tumors, we recognize that most of these tumors actually have a fairly high tumor mutational burden, pretty similar to inflamed and excluded tumors, suggesting that the lack of antigens is unlikely to be the main issue here and more likely to revolve around very active immune suppression mechanisms that essentially drive out immune cell engagement in the tumor microenvironment. And you may have seen recently some unfortunate failed phase three studies in one of these immune uh, deserts, prostate cancer itself. So I'm gonna leave you with my final conclusions. Um, number one, PD-L1 and PD-1 inhibitors work, they're transformative, and we're still seeing benefit as we move these into earlier lines of disease. Second, combinations of immunotherapy with chemotherapy and VEGF inhibitors have represented the majority of combination success we've seen, and that may be due to the added activity without overlapping resistance mechanisms. Synthetic immunity allows for one way to overcome some of those major escape mechanisms, has been more successful in hematologic malignancies. Perhaps some of the lack of early success against solid tumors may be because of the inability to really engage endogenous immunity simultaneous with the synthetic immune approaches. And then finally, next generation immunotherapy really should focus on either modulating the critical nodes for immune escape or taking your, your single agent or combination into very specific patient populations, much the way EGFR inhibitors, for example, evolved in their development. And so to leave you with one final quote from one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell from The Tipping Point, um, 
we're all familiar with the Pareto uh, principle. It's essentially the 80-20 rule. You know this as 20% of the people can do 80% of the work or whatever system that you may be working in. But in some systems, the 80-20 rule is actually further exaggerated beyond 80-20. And that is driven by the presence of these critical nodes. And our immune systems are wired in much the same way. There are a lot of players that are helped that are used biologically to modulate the human immune response, but on their own, some of them may not be terribly impactful. It's because there are some dominant drivers and, and some that are smaller, have a smaller effect. Obviously, PDL1, PD1 is one of those major drivers. And as a community, I think we need, really need to focus on identifying and modulating the other critical nodes that are in existence in human cancer. Thank you very much. Dan, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.